Well, it is a joy and honor to be here with you. Uh, man, Bend is so beautiful. This is my second time here, and uh, uh, I do want that youth pastor position. Where's Ken? Where is Ken? Uh, I was a youth pastor 27 years ago. I think games have changed since then. I'm not sure. Um, well, it is, I don't know, it's such a joy to be here, and uh, I am really uh, honored to um, get to visit your church uh, over the next five weeks. I'm uh, visiting churches on the weekends. I'm on a three-month sabbatical right now, so for the two months, I've just been kind of resting with my family, and for the next five weeks, I'll just be traveling on the weekends, and I really wanted to visit churches and leaders that I have... Um, been in friendship with and have admired from afar and just to be here and to see what God is doing here. And one of the most exciting things about visiting, whether it's in your city or around the country or around the world, is that it's a great remedy for your cynicism to be able to witness what God is doing all around the world. And if there's one encouragement about just being able to see beyond our own bubble, it would be that. Uh, is just to see glimpses of God at work. Uh, in a short bit, I'm going to read our passage for today, uh, but uh, maybe I could just share a little bit of my story with you, if I may, just so that you have a little context and the message might make a little bit more sense. Um, I am uh, turning 44 in a couple months. Um, I am so glad that Asians age well. And... Um, um, I am going through my midlife uh, reflection right now. Uh, midlife reflection sounds so much more spiritual than midlife crisis. And I was born in Korea, uh, in South Korea, and I immigrated to this country when I was six years old. I am the youngest of three sons. My wife and I, we've been married for about 18 years. My wife is a uh, family and marriage therapist, which means that she wins all the arguments at our home. It's very unfair, very unfair. She often diagnoses me. She goes, you are wrong. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding. She, she, she always does this. And uh, we have three children, uh, ages one that's turning 16 in a month. Uh, let's pray right now. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Bow your heads. No. Um, we have a 16 13 and an 11-year-old. Uh, my oldest is a junior in high school, and it's been such a phenomenal joy. It really is. And, but if you know our children's names, if you know their names, uh, you'll have a very good understanding of my worldview, of the lens by which I see things. Our children, they have both biblical names and pop culture names. Uh, I love the scriptures, and I love how we can take scriptures to engage culture. I believe that's what we're called to do as followers of Christ. So for example, our oldest, her name is Jubilee. Jubilee from Leviticus, from Old Testament, God's promise, God's command, and it's also an X-Men character. Okay, <laughs> okay wrong, wrong crowd, wrong crowd. Uh, and then our second daughter, uh, her name is Trinity. And don't judge us, okay? She's not yet seen the film Matrix, but obviously a character from Matrix. And Trinity is this great theological uh, truth of God's identity. And then lastly, our son, his name is Jedi. Jedi. I'm a big Star Wars fan, okay? Thankfully, there's four more. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And uh, uh, so... His name comes from the Old Testament, from Solomon's Hebrew name, which was Jedediah, which means the chosen beloved. It's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful name. And if you read any of George Lucas's biography, you'll know that he was deeply influenced by his Judeo-Christian background. So when I share this story, a lot of young men, particularly young single men, uh, they come up to me and they'll say, uh, uh, Pastor Eugene. How did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? <laughs> Teach us, Oyota. <laughs> so let me sh share that with you, if I may, okay? Uh, if I may, young women, don't listen to this. Um, it's really important that in any relationship, a 
person is never stripped of their freedom. Does that make sense? Because if that happens, uh, fights will begin. Revolutions will begin, right? And so I went to my wife when we found out we were having a son. I said, Minhi, I love you so much. That's not the trick. I said, I love you so much. Uh, I would like to name our son Jedi. And she said, no. <laughs> so I said, I would like to name our son Jedi. <laughs> Some of you did not get that. That was so good. And she said, no. Okay. And it was actually very tense. We got into fights about this. This is really important to me. And so around eight and a half months into the pregnancy, I finally went back to her and I said, Minhi, I'm sorry. I was very stubborn. Uh, I realized it is only fair, only right, and only just that you, the mother of this child, you carrying this baby in your womb, you should choose his name. Smile comes across her face. So I said, here's your choice. Did you get that? Write that down. It's Jedi or Frodo. One, one of these two. One of these two. And I am so glad that she chose Jedi because Frodo Cho does not sound right to me. It does not sound right. So, Antioch, what I'd like to do, and part of it is, man, it feels so good to be given 45 minutes to teach. Uh, it feels so good. Uh, that way we can kind of, kind of navigate a little bit to our destination. Let me give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. In a short bit, I'm going to read from Amos chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, maybe even now, I'd love for you to start looking for Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Now, I'm going to begin by explaining the context of Amos even before I actually read the passage for you. Because in giving you a little bit of the context and the history, it'll make that context or that story, that passage, that much more significant. And today, my goal, my hope as a preacher is to give you or to help continue to build a more robust understanding of what it means to not just pursue justice, but to live justly, and why that would be important. So that's our goal, and that's the roadmap for today. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about Amos and Amos's life. Now, Amos, as some of you might know, was a prophet. And before he comes into emergence, he had a job, which was often the case for all of the women and men that God calls. Every single one of us, we have a particular path that we're walking, and there may be occasions where the path that we're walking is the path by which God wants us to continue to walk. There are other scenarios where we're walking a certain way and God says, wake up, it's time for you to turn and walk this path that I have for you in this season of your life. And that's something that you and I have to regularly discern. Part of what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is that we have ears to hear and hearts that would beat towards the rhythm of the kingdom of God. Now, for Amos, he's not well-known. Today, if you were to talk about some of the more well-known prophets, I guarantee you Amos would not be in our top five. We would often speak about someone like Isaiah, but Amos was not well-known. But I want to illuminate a little bit about his life with you in hopes that as we examine his imperfect life, his imperfect faith that we see glimpses of obedience and courage and faith and ultimately about God's character. Now, Amos lived around the time around 750 B.C. 
I'm giving you some ballpark general figures so you have an idea where to park his life in the context of the Christian calendar or Christian history. He's around 750 BC, and he lived in a region called Tekoa. And Tekoa was, again, not a very well-known town. It always was in the shadows of a larger city called Jerusalem. But Amos was living in a town called Tekoa, and he had two parts to his job. He was a shepherd, and he was a farmer. And specifically in his farming, he specialized in what we called sycamore trees that produced a particular produce. And for this produce, there wasn't enough of a market in Tekoa or even in Jerusalem per se. And so he often traveled up north. When you look at some of the maps that your Bible shows, Tekoa will be on the southern region. And so he traveled up north. Now, the reason why I want you to have an understanding about his jobs, his professions, I'm going to be very bluntly honest. When you saw this man, Amos, I guarantee you, you would not look at your kids and say, I want you to be like Amos. Whether we verbalize it or not, the truth is there is in our context as well as in almost every context a, so, a social cast of importance or significance. And when you look at your children, you want, you want them to aspire for more things, for greater things. And I guarantee you amongst probably the bottom five of things that you wanted your kids to do during those days he embodied three of them, a farmer, a shepherd, and a prophet. See, prophets were hated and they were vilified. In today's world, when you look at some leaders or figures and you said, this person has a prophetic voice, in today's world, it is received as an adoration, as an encouragement, as an elevation. Back then, to be called a prophet was basically social suicide. Man, you were hated, you were vilified, you were misunderstood. You did not want your kids to ever be a prophet. And certainly, you didn't want your children to become like shepherds or farmers because that meant they were out in the outside working hard with their hands. Now, why do I share this with you? I share this with you because... I don't want to dismiss or diminish your jobs, your degrees. I don't want to diminish your expertise. But I want you, I need you to know that the most important thing in our discipleship this morning and tomorrow and next week and the months to come, it actually isn't your degrees, your profession, your expertise. God can use those things. The most important thing is our willingness and commitment to say, yes, Lord. And this is what I admire about people like Amos. When you look at the women and men and children in the scriptures, we often tend to elevate their lives and their obedience, but they were just like you and I, broken, fallen, depraved women, men, and children who by God's grace said, yes, Lord. And so here's Amos, a shepherd, a farmer, doing his work, and he gets called by God to be a prophet, to be prophetic, and he responds, and by God's grace, God begins to use him. Now, there's a reason or there's a, a story here. And so what happens is here's, here's Amos. As he travels up north with his produce, he begins to see and witness things that disturb him immensely. Now, this encourages me because as he goes about his work, it's not just about going from step A to step B, meaning he didn't see himself as all I have to do is take my produce, my job is to make money, and so I will do this as expediently, as efficiently as possible, dismissing people because the bottom line is money. 
And if we're not careful, this could happen to us easily, where we begin to see people, we begin to see churches, we begin to see our work, we begin to see everything merely as transactions. And there's just so much more. We have to explore the idea that the work that you do, the calling that you have, the profession that you have, the expertise that you have, the careers that you have, the degrees that you have is more than our worldly transactions. So here's Amos. He travels up north, and as he goes about his work, he begins to see and he witnesses, he observes things that is disturbing to his spirit. Does that make sense? So as he begins to travel up north, for example, he begins to see a disparity of wealth unlike anything he's ever seen. Now, I'm not suggesting that there has to be, everything has to be equal, but he saw such disparity between the haves and have-nots. But more specifically, what disturbed him was that oftentimes the haves were these religious leaders who professed in a faith and a belief in Yahweh, who were rigorous and religious about their legal observation of the law, and yet these were the very same people who were, here's the word, they were exploiting the poor. It was the religious leaders that were exploiting the poor and then they had the audacity and the gall to come up with erroneous false theology to explain why they were blessed and why the poor deserved what they got, a.k.a. that meant they were cursed by God. And this began to be so incongruous to Amos' spirit. It began to bother him so much that he began to ponder it. Now, we got to ponder the injustices of the world today. I think if you're like me, the temptation of our time is that we can be so easily desensitized to everything. Oftentimes, the other reflex is we want to do a quick without thinking or praying or pondering and letting the brokenness of God's heart break our heart, we simply react quickly or we move on to the next thing. And what Amos chooses to do is that he sits on it, he ponders it, he wrestles with it, he prays through it, and it begins to be something that really permeates through his very life. So much that he begins to receive visions and dreams. And the book of Amos is really that. If you've never had a chance to, I would encourage you to read through Amos sometime this week. It is a collection of several dreams that Amos has that God begins to speak through Amos, and they are powerful and they are intense. And it gets so intense that he goes to this, this sanctuary, this place of worship, called Bethel Temple, and he goes to Bethel Temple uh, where the leader of that time was a guy named Amaziah. He was a priest during that time. He goes to this temple, and he has the courage. I'm sure he was afraid. I'm sure he was afraid. One of the things that I tell my church is that... Uh, people at my church, they love me as their preacher and their pastor when I say things that they agree with. When I say things I, they don't agree with, they hate me. And I wish I was exaggerating, and it's oftentimes the case. So what's the temptation for me as a preacher? It's to say things that people will agree with. So here's Amos, he goes to the Bethel temple, and then he gives, or God speaks, this prophetic word to Amos, to the religious people at Bethel temple. And it is so powerful that Amaziah, the priest, threatens him, and he begins to send that word to other places that this guy, Amos, actually needs to be banished 
altogether from Israel, the country. Now I want you to read or hear the word of God from Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Listen. I'm going to read from the version called The Message. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Now, you can kind of see why Amaziah was very upset. And this was a prophetic word that God speaks through Amos. Now, it's possible that maybe a couple of you in the corner of your mind, you might be thinking, is this guy, Eugene, is this guy knocking our church? I'm not here to knock on your church. When I share this message, there are folks that kind of feel pushed back because they feel like there's a nice auditorium, there's lights, there's lots of band instruments, there's no iPad stands here right now, but there's lots of different things. These are the very same things that we have at our church. Our church, we have slogans and phrases that matter to our church. We have an amazing worship team. We have speakers and pastors who are gifted communicators of the word. We have a church building that we own. We have a cafe space. We have all of these things. But what is it that Amos is saying? Amos isn't knocking your screens, your instruments, your chairs, your your food, your bookstores. He's not saying those things in themselves are bad or wrong or ungodly. But what he is saying is this. If the totality of our worship, if the fullness of our expression of embodying what it means to follow God, if it is contained only and exclusively from 9.30 to 11.30 on Sunday, if this is it, then this is a show. It's a sham. It's a religious pyramid scheme. And so he looks at these religious leaders who on the day of worship or when they were out publicly praying were saying certain things, reciting certain things, encouraging others to do certain things, and yet outside that religious time, they were not living consistent with God's heart and character. He says, God hates these things. Because it's a show. Oftentimes when we think about what it means to live justly, we think it has to involve Southeast Asia or Africa or some inner cities. If you want to live justly, you simply have to live out your faith when you exit those doors. When you see that exit sign right there, I would say that what we do here is beautiful, it's good, it's godly, it's important, but I would say true worship continues once you see that exit sign. That's what it means. It means that If you say you believe in Jesus, that you believe in the crucifixion and praise God, the resurrection, it means that you live out your faith in your marriages, in the ways that we nurture and discipline and speak destiny into our children. It means that it impacts the way that we see our neighbors and Bend and Central Oregon and this country and the larger world and even those that we say are our enemies. It changes everything. This is not a show. 
And this is one of the reasons why I respect your pastors. This is one of the reasons why I feel honored to be here because we can collectively say, Lord, may this not be a show. Now you get this. And I know you get this. So what does it mean then to kind of build a robust theology? And our theology matters because ultimately our theology, it informs our praxis, our practicing of life. Oh, I would say that maybe we have time for three or four things that I'd love to share. Justice is important, and some of this might be regurgitation to you, but justice is important because justice is not some sort of a trendy topic. It's not a conference. It's not some sort of a fundraising project. The reason why justice is important is because ultimately it reflects the character of God. In the same way that you and I probably would resist someone saying, I want to extract, take out of God's character, love or grace or holiness out of God's character. Like we couldn't, you cannot somehow surgically remove love from God's character. You cannot somehow surgically, theologically, intellectually remove holiness from God's character. God is holy. He's so holy, the authors in the Old Testament on numerous occasions, you just can't say God is holy. They say God is holy, holy, holy. You just can't remove it. Somehow, over the course of history, on several areas, what we've chosen to do is we've removed justice from God's character. To the point that now, when you speak about justice as a Christian, man, you are so liberal. You're so progressive. I think you're a socialist. You're an angry Asian socialist. Justice is important because it reflects God's character. Amos is saying, God is saying through Amos that when we pursue justice, when you live justly, that in itself, here it is, is worship. Is worship. We have to get out of our minds this paradigm that worship is a service, that worship is a program. We gotta get that out of our minds and hearts. That when we seek to live in obedience to God, that is an expression of justice itself. So that's the first thing, is that we need to understand that the reason why we pursue justice, why we seek to live justly, is because it is ultimately a reflection of God's character. That when you live justly and pursue these things, you more fully live into the character of God. So what's the second thing? The second thing I'd like to share with you is that for a church like yours, for each of you, who I think through your community, through Ben, through your church, you're exposed to many conversations of justice and injustice, there is a big difference between pursuing justice, living justly, and then here it is, is to be more in love with the idea of those things. My confession to you, and it's one that I wrestled with for many years, is that I came to this point realization, kind of a painful realization, that I was more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world. And even more tragic, it never dawned on me until recent years that I myself needed to be changed. It was always me helping other people, or more so, me loving the idea of helping other people. You see, when I speak with Christians, I have never met a Christian who does not love justice. 
right? If I were to ask you rhetorically, who here does not love justice, probably no hands would go up. And if your hand did go up, all of us in our minds would say, repent. Because it's consistent with what we read in the scriptures, what we see embodied in the life of Jesus. But maybe if we're honest, everyone loves justice until there's a cost to you. And maybe we need to be honest and say there's always a cost to justice. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus. This is why Jesus himself tells his disciples on several occasions in the Gospels, take up your cross daily and follow me. Count the costs and follow me. I think I'm losing some of you. Let me give you an example. I, uh, I love, I love exercise. Okay, let me be more honest here. Um, I love the idea of exercise. <laughs> now, I'm going to be very honest here. Um, for about 10 years, I had a gym membership. Paid $9.95. It was a small, dinky neighborhood gym that got bought out by 24-7, and by legal law, they had to honor my $9.95 membership fee. Over those 10 years, I went once <laughs> to pay for my dues. Once. At my home, I have a treadmill. In the past year, I've used it once. I have an ab buster, as you can tell. <laughs> I have a thigh buster, a butt buster, I have all the busters that are out on the market. I brought my running shoes to bend. And I am proud to say that I ran last night. First time in a long time. You can never call me a hypocrite again. Do you know how many calories you lose thinking about exercise? This is not a trick question. Zero. You see what I'm saying? You can think about justice. You can read the verses about justice. You could see how Jesus embodied justice. You could read or you can theologize about justice, and there is a huge difference between that and letting it do you, changing you transforming you, wrecking you, restoring you, compelling you, there's a difference. And I think for some of us, for many of us, that's the challenge, is that we cannot just be enamored by the idea of doing good things. The reality is that our world is broken. Even in your beautiful town of Bend, we cannot be oblivious. I'm sure there's numerous things here in Bend, in Central Oregon, in, in, the, in the United States, all around the world. If we simply open our eyes, there is so much brokenness in this world. And I don't know about you, but over the past two months, it has been such an, I feel like it's been such an intense time. When you think about some of the issues with children left at the borders of the United States, when you think about issues of trafficking, when you think about what's going on in Syria, where now over three million refugees, of which about half of them are children. When you think about what's going on in Iraq with ISIS, and the intense persecution, not just of Christians, but of all minority groups. Complicated, certainly, but when you think about what has transpired in Ferguson, clearly you and I can all agree the world is broken. 
there is good news here. And the good news for us as followers of Jesus is that we are clinging on not just to a false promise, but we are clinging on to a promise that God is at work all around the world. And he is calling his sons and daughters, his children, to live in obedience to him here, there, and everywhere. The good news is that this Jesus who said, I will die and rise again three days later, when he says, I will come back, it is our deep conviction that the hope of the world is that Jesus will return one day to restore all things back unto the one who made everything good and beautiful. It's that truth that gives us hope to continue to be faithful. I, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are probably thinking, um, what can one person do? That's often the question I ask myself. What can one person do? Well, I'm so grateful that Amos said yes. I have good news for you here. I want you to know that God never speaks his vision in isolation. God's vision, God's purposes is never revealed only to one person. That means if you feel called and convicted for something, part of the journey, part of the joy of journey is that you'll meet and you'll encounter other women and men who share those similar convictions as well. Elijah went through this when he thought, am I the only one? And God laughs at him and says, no, you're not the only one. Isn't this why you're here at church today? Because we're here at church today because we believe that church is not just about one person. It's not just about the pastor. It's about a group of women and men on mission together. This is why it's so important for us to be part of a group together. There's a long story behind this, but let me kind of quickly go through this. Some years ago, about six, seven years ago, uh, I witnessed some difficult things in my life. Prior to that, I preached sermons, wrote blog posts, put up lots of stuff on social media. Not that those things were bad, but that was the extent of my engagement with justice work. And one summer, I saw some really intense things in the city of Seattle. One of them was seeing a, a homeless man get doused with gasoline. He was one of our patrons at our cafe. And he was doused by gasoline, according to some reports, by young people, and they lit him on fire. That summer, I also had a chance to visit a country called Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar. And when I went to visit a makeshift school in Burma, it was a classroom for first to fifth graders. And when I walked into this classroom, I was absolutely petrified, disgusted by a poster that I saw taped onto this beat-up chalkboard. And in this beat-up chalkboard, it was a collage of photos of men, women, and children with missing body parts, and many of them, there was blood oozing out of them. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not an educator or a teacher, but that does not seem appropriate for a classroom for first to fifth graders. In his broken English, my host says to me, Reverend Cho, Reverend Cho, come closer. He gets on his knees and then he begins to point to this bottom row of this big poster and he says to me, he goes, Reverend Cho, these landmines, we must teach our children avoid landmines. The world is broken. 
It was later that day, I had a conversation with a leader in the family, and I want to share a photo here. I remember meeting this elder of this village here, and I asked him, probably not one of my better questions, I said, what's hard? What's difficult in your village? He had so much hope, the spirit of perseverance, but he said to me, he goes, um, teacher salaries hard. So I asked, so how much are their salaries? He sticks out four fingers and he says, $40 US. So naturally my question was per, per day. He laughs and he chuckles. And so I felt like I insulted him. I said, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 per week? He chuckles again and just shakes his head. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. $40 a month? His face turns stoic and he shakes his head. $40 a year? And he finally nods. Now, I'm saying this not because I'm trying to make you feel guilty, not at all, but simply to illuminate the disparity there is in our world. And I was reminded of this quote from Mother Teresa where she says, if you can't feed a hundred people, then just feed one. That oftentimes you and I, we can get so paralyzed by the inundation of information or of overanalysis, and our job is not to save the world. That's not our job. When we throw out phrases like world changers and history makers, those are all marketing slogans. Our job is to be faithful. So when you feel convicted and prompted by the stories that you hear at Antioch, don't let those pass respond to the convictions. Your job is not to worry about the whole world. Your job isn't to worry, will anybody else join you? It's about how are you going to respond to the convictions the Holy Spirit places upon your heart. I share this not in any sort of arrogance. So please receive this with grace. Uh, my wife and I, we received more criticism because of our decision to make this public than anything else. I came back from this trip, spent some time praying and fasting with my wife, and it was not what we expected. Because you have to ask the question, what are you gonna do? So I thought, well, maybe I'll write a sermon or a blog post. Maybe I'll do something else. But in prayer, God convicts us. It was very clear to both of us separately and then together as we prayed, God convicts us to give up one year's wages. Now, I know pastors are not supposed to say this unless you're a prosperity theology pastor, but I really like my money. <laughs> if I can just be honest, I feel like I work hard for the salary that my church gives to me. And so it takes us three years to say yes. And over those three years, we spent time simplifying our life, selling off possessions that we simply didn't need. It meant simplifying all the programs that our kids had to do. For about three years, we made a difficult decision together. And, and, let me just share a graph with you, if I may. A full disclosure, I make $68,000 as a pastor. I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but that's my salary as a pastor. Now, I know that you guys are aware of some of the world's richest people, right? Bill Gates is number one. I call him Billy. He doesn't text me, but uh, Billy is number one. And most folks don't realize that I'm also ranked amongst the world's richest people. I am ranked 
the 52nd million, 40,162nd richest person in the world. You better respect me. <laughs> now, I know it doesn't sound very impressive, but that puts me in the top 0.86 percentile of wealth in the world. If there's one thing that you walk away with this morning, walk away with this. Man, you are blessed. You have enough. God is your enough. And it's not to suggest that the stuff that you own are bad in themselves. Just remember in our upward mobility culture, you have enough. And that God is your enough. If you have a chance, I'd love for you guys to go home maybe today or this week and check out onedayswages.org. We felt convicted to give up a year's wages and our conviction has been to ask people around the world to consider giving up just one day's wages to help fight global poverty. And we weren't quite sure what God was going to do with this and so we made this pledge after three years and stunning. 13,000 people from around the country have helped us raise so far $2.4 million, of which all of it goes to empower the poorest of the poor, to come alongside them. Here's the last thing that I'll share, and I'll close. Justice is about dignity. If we're not careful, I know the sermon feels really jagged. If we're not careful, we'll end up, even in justice work, if we're not careful, we'll end up playing the hero complex. It's always about us fixing things for other people. And we have to be very careful when you do the work of justice or just simply when you seek to love your neighbors, when you seek to live as faithful disciples, one of the most important things is that you have to look at people in the eyes. Jesus does some amazing miracles. I mean, the miracles that he does, just incredible, beautiful resume, impressive resume. But to this day, when I read the scriptures, every single time my heart skips a beat, those moments, those numerous moments when Jesus stops and the Son of God, God himself, the Word incarnate, he looks at people in the eyes. You see, because when we look at someone in the eyes, what we're saying is, I see you. You have value and worth and dignity and God's purpose and God's destiny. It means that person is also created in the image of God. It's actually one of the most important just things that we can do. Remember that woman who's been suffering from internal bleeding? And she's thinking to herself, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. And she touches Jesus, and Jesus asks what I consider to be a dumb question. He says, who touched me? Jesus, you're Jesus. <laughs> you know this, right? He asked that question because he wanted to pause to give those people around him the moment a glimpse of God's kingdom that the God that we serve not is only mindful of everything that goes on in the cosmos, he's also mindful of this one woman who's been marginalized and ostracized and called the worst of names. Because that's the God we worship. So when we do the work of justice, when you do the work of evangelism, when you do the work of what it means to be a disciple, and you start treating people not consistently with Jesus, what we end up doing is we end up reducing people into projects. Listen, the homeless are not projects. The traffic are not just projects. We have to look at people in the eyes. I double majored in college, 
I was a psychology and a theater student. I was horrible in theater. Didn't get my degree. I was cast for two plays in college. And in one of those plays, I was playing a, a homeless person. The director, known for his brilliance, but also his bluntness, he came to me one day and said, Eugene, uh, you're, you're not good. <laughs> you're jumping on lines. You don't understand this, the story of this homeless person. So he challenges me to spend several days out in the streets. And so with some bad stereotypes in my mind, I dress a certain way, grab my sleeping bag, make a cardboard sign for myself, and I go to Market Street in San Francisco, and I spend four days, three nights there. It was miserable. But what I remember to this day is for those days and nights that I sat on Market Street, Thousands of people passed by. And there were on occasion some that threw me change. But what I remember the most is that for every single person that walked by, no one would look at me in the eyes. And I had never felt so invisible so insignificant, so inconsequential. Look at people in the eyes. Get off your phones. Get off your gadgets. You don't have to necessarily fix the whole world. Sometimes what it means to be faithful is to learn to be human all over again. God, this is our prayer. Our prayer is that you would help us, convict us, to not just be in love with the idea of justice, but to commit ourselves to just living, even if just living may not be spectacular. God, I pray for your wisdom and blessings upon this beautiful body, Antioch Church, upon its congregants, its leaders, and may they, be a living witness. May they be light and salt. God, we give you glory and honor. And all God's people said, amen.